0: To thank today's sponsor anchor if you haven't heard about anchor it's the easiest way to make a podcast let me explain first of all it's free they have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so you can have it be heard on spotify and apple podcasts plus many more you can make money from your podcast with absolutely no minimum listenership it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Welcome back to the Wrong Advice Podcast. I'm your host, John Picciuto, and I'm very excited to have my guest, Scott McDonald, on the line today. Scott, how are you doing, buddy?
1: I'm great. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Happy how
0: are to, you? I'm great, man. Happy to have you. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners?
1: Sure. So... uh as you said, I'm Scott McDonald. Uh, I am a chef. Um, I have been working all over New York City and New Jersey uh, for about 12 years um, and just really love the culinary industry and, you know, talking about life and challenges and all the good stuff we're about to get into here. Awesome,
0: I uh, sought you out specifically. I mean, I didn't know who you were until my brother told me. Um, to be fair, we're, we're four years apart in high school, um, but you know, it's like a world away now. Um, but I was talking to my brother about my podcast, and I was like, "Man, I really, really want to have a chef on um, on my show." I was like, "Do you know anybody?" He's like, "Yeah, I do," and here we are today. So I'm I'm really really excited to have you on. Um, the premise being that. I liken myself to a booter version of Anthony Bourdain. Like that's like the goal, the life, the dream, um, et cetera. So I would love for you to like, walk me through how you got into cooking. Um, you know, your, your path from high school to college, to culinary school, etc., And like how you got to where you're at today.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been quite a, uh, crazy ride. So I'm excited <laughs> to share it. Um, so we went to West Essex, you know, um, and right out of high school, I actually had dreams of becoming a pharmacist. Really? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Wow. I, yeah, went to uh, pre-medical school at York College wow. uh, in Pennsylvania. I did about a semester or two there, um, and I realized it just wasn't for me. It was very long hours, which I had no problem with, but it was all in a chemistry lab. It just, it just wasn't a right fit. And I found myself getting, uh, more and more frustrated as it progressed. Um, and for some reason I found myself cooking every time I was frustrated. I was drawn to that stove. Um, you know, growing up, my parents, they're great cooks now, but back in the day, um, (laughs) you know, food wasn't mom. I love you. Sorry if you hear this. (laughs) But, you know, food wasn't what it was today. I don't think there was the knowledge around that. And, you know, I was grew up very fortunate um, to have great parents. But, you know, food wasn't something that was, I don't know, we weren't so adventurous. You know, we Mm -hmm. had your standard mac and cheeses, pizzas, um,
0: meat and potatoes, stuff like
1: that. Exactly, Irish family, so meat, and lots of meat and potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my uncles were actually the ones that were very adventurous. Um, we used to go to North Carolina every summer, and I remember him. One of my uncles, my uncle John and Uncle Joe, um, great cooks, and they put some mussels in front of me. It was just in like a nice spicy marinara, and I'll never forget it was like, what is this? <laughs> what are these guys cooking? And it really kind of opened my eye to being more adventurous and seeing what is out there and what other people are eating. And it kind of ignited the spark. Um, and my parents have a big backyard and it was kind of the you know, spot where everyone came to hang out by the pool and grill and you know i always found myself gravitating towards the grill seeing what my uncles were doing seeing what they were cooking um so my mom and my sister actually reignited this this passion and i said what are you doing you know why are you going to medical school you're you're someone that needs to be working with their hands um so i i dropped out of medical school and i tried to get into the culinary institute of america um I was accepted there, and
0: and that's CIA that's in New it. York, correct? yep, very yep. funny, very funny story. I worked a uh, tech job in the city <clears throat> for a startup in that building, like we shared floors with CIA. It's in like flatiron, right?
1: Uh, that might be FCI oh. the French uh, culinary. okay, the culinary Institute of America's up in the Hyde Park. Gotcha. Like Poughkeepsie okay. area. okay, yeah. Um, beautiful school. I really loved it. Um, It is very (laughs) military boot camp. You know, you have to be clean shaven. Your chef whites have to be pressed. You know, you miss two classes. You fail that class for the semester and you got to restart. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty intense. I remember I was taking a final one day and the teacher came over, was handing out all the scantrons. Remember those things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fond and, memories. <laughs> yeah. She put it down and she said, you can't start until you go back to your dorm room and shave. Wow. So, yes, yes, it's crazy. So,
0: the Yankees back of back the culinary institute of the culinary <laughs> world.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was back in the day when it was, you know, ran by a bunch of old angry French guys. <laughs> Um, I think they've progressed a little bit since then. You know, I went up there pretty recently and you know, they have this beer class now. There's fermentation stations, there's oh, all this cool. molecular gastronomy. Yeah, it's grown to be something quite great, which I think is huge for the industry. Um, so when you're there you actually have to go and do an externship. They Mm -hmm. kick you out for about six months. Um, And I was lucky enough that my brother actually knew the executive chef of Tribeca Grill. Oh, wow. um, Yeah, owned by Drew Neerport and Robert De Niro. Yeah, Um, casual. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I went there and I did my, you know, (laughs) I did my uh, externship there. Started Mm -hmm. as a line cook and really just kind of jumped ball speed in and didn't realize how intense, just the stress, the fast pace. You know, I didn't realize it, but man, in a month or two, I was hooked. Yeah. And I couldn't stop. Um, you know, so I finished my externship uh, and then you go back to the CIA and kind of finish out your time there. And once I finished, I packed up my stuff and I went to China. Wow. Yeah. There. So you go through school and obviously there's like certain times where you're learning different cuisines. You know, there's a French class, whatever, Spanish, you know, Asian. So the actual instructor from the you know, Asian studies said, Hey, I want to send a bunch of people to China. Hmm. Um if you can get five people willing to go, um, we'll send you to China. You'll spend about four weeks there, and you will eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at a different restaurant every day. You will then train under twelve different chefs during your time there. And it was incredible.
0: I mean that sounds <laughs> incredible
1: yeah it was uh we stayed in chengdu or Sichuan province um and it's like we were celebrities there really here we are yeah i get out you know it takes almost a full day to get there here i am i walk out and i'm a six foot one white guy with blonde hair blue eyes (laughs) (laughs) stick out like a sore thumb exactly yeah but I'm telling you, if the language barrier wasn't so difficult, I wouldn't have come back. Really? I would have stayed. It just, to get in a plane, spend a whole day traveling there and be dropped off in some place that is just so foreign, it's just so exciting. And I think it's something that everyone should do at some point in their life because um, it definitely gave a perspective of, you know, how, I don't know, big the world is or, or yeah. how little we are, you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's quite our, a humbling experience.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I find that so amazing. So the, the five of you that, that you went with were like, were you friendly with any of these people or were they just people from your class? Like how, how did that work?
1: Um, yeah, so two of them were like my best friends. I lived oh, with great. them. Oh, nice. Um, and then the other people, basically, when you start at the CIA, you're with the same group of people mm-hmm. throughout your whole time there. Gotcha. The only time you kind of lose people or gain people is if someone, you know, either has to take some time off or fails a class, they kind of drop back and the rest of the team progresses. And we pick up the people that are ahead of us dropping back gotcha so there was like a group of 3 of us that took it all the way
0: interesting the so way. so you went from what i would consider like a pretty boss externship at a wildly famous establishment to 4 years in uh 4 years, excuse me 4 weeks in china when you come back after that obviously extremely life-changing experience what was like the next uh you know rung on the ladder for your culinary
1: career I was actually able to get promoted to the sous chef at Tribeca grill.
0: Casual. Is that, is that where you are still to this day?
1: <laughs> no, I am not. No, oh. many, many of restaurants have. gone. Have come and gone <laughs> in that time since. Um, but I was lucky enough to become the sous chef at Tribeca grill. And, uh, just being at that point in that stage of my career, um, I'm so grateful for someone like Drew Nearport, who is considered this, you know, top tier legendary restaurateur, was able to really take a chance on some young guy right out of culinary school and, and really teach me so many things and get me so many connections with people. That's incredible. Um, yeah, he's he's an amazing person.
0: So you're like fresh faced right out of school, given this huge huge opportunity what are you feeling when you're like thrust into this like super make or break kind of scenario at like i said a wildly famous establishment
1: it it's definitely a lot to take on and it definitely amplifies the the stress and and high intensity of what the job already entails Mm -hmm. um and that kind of just took over me it it in good ways and in a bad way, uh-huh. you know, I've always been someone that was an extremely hard worker head down and just grinding. Um, and that's what I did there. Uh-huh. I, you know, I made my mistakes early, but I, I, I got them out and I always wanted to improve every day. I always wanted to make the job better, the job easier. I wanted to learn, teach and, and, just really connect with everyone in the industry mm-hmm. there are some of the best people in the world in my opinion in this industry and you know
0: i mean that's probably an opinion shared by a multitude of people for sure <laughs> um <laughs> how long were you the sous chef at uh, tribeca grill
1: i was there for about two years okay um
0: now over that, that time period, I mean like talk me through like what that process is like because my understanding of a sous chef is, is, you know, dictated primarily from film and television. But my my impression is that you are like the number two, right? You're like the um the captain or the general or whatever, the you know, behind the president, et cetera. Like so there's the main cook and then you are the guy who like does all of the important shit, right? Wrong.
1: Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It's a, it's definitely a a hierarchy, right? You know, there's, there's the executive chef. Mm -hmm. Um, He is in charge of all the orders. He's in charge of the menu. He's in charge of staffing and and everything's really on him. And he is the orchestrator, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's there to basically direct out the team and, you know, a place like Tribeca grill had one executive chef. It had a chef de cuisine, and then it had two sous chefs. Gotcha. And, and then a the slew that based on of like, line cooks.
0: Is, that, is the dual sous chef thing based on like working two separate time shifts kind of deal?
1: Exactly, yeah. There's usually always an opening and a closing sous chef. Gotcha. Um, usually the, um, I would say, less experienced sous chef is the opener because mm-hmm. he kind of comes in early and, really puts his head down and grinds and gets prep back up to where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, the executive chef comes in when he wants checks on the place. Um, And then the other sous chef comes in and then really focuses on service and making sure that it's, you know, executed perfectly and all the prep is done and organized and labeled and all that fun stuff.
0: I mean that's wild to me. I mean you're you're in your early twenties, you're thrust into a very prestigious position. Um, what was that feeling like? You know, what gave you confidence in your, you know, skills, your ability to be able to deliver at what I would consider like a, a very high stage at, you know, very early, you know, stage of your career.
1: It's a great question. Um, it was very tricky and maybe tricky is not the best word, but it was really the team that got me through it. Right. In the beginning, they were kind of put off by me and they really don't want it. They didn't want to accept me right off the bat. You know, I was the new guy, you know, and here I am. I think I was, 21 22 years old mm-hmm. something like that at the time as a sous chef at tribeca grill i got guys under me that have been working there for 10 years eight years yeah. and 10 years and are, are significantly more experienced and and older than me and i think the thing that really got me to where i wanted to be and got them respecting me and helping work with me was just my constant drive. I I was that guy that was picking up the the broom and the mop constantly. I was that guy there early getting my prep done and then saying, Hey, what do you guys need? Mm -hmm. And once they understood that I was there for them to make their lives easier and help build that, everything kind of fell in line. And I've held that as a, a standard for every restaurant I've, opened or worked at.
0: That's pretty great. I mean, I think it goes without saying that you can't really teach work ethic, right? Like, that's something you're either born with or, you know, you're lucky enough to have. It's not something that you can – it is something you can with hard work develop, but at the end of the day, you're either – you know, a type a driven human being or you're not. And obviously that's something that can like quickly build confidence with the, you know, the team around you being like, Oh, who's this kid coming in here? Who does he think he is? Et cetera. So that's pretty cool. Um, I talk about a lot. So like late in life, I've discovered like this passion that I have for photography. And I've had a a number of conversations with photographers who are wildly successful in comparison to where I'm at with my journey in uh, how I deal with imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to think that I can do this thing? Who am I to think that I can produce this work for this brand or this magazine, et cetera? Um, Is that something that's relatable in the kitchen? Um, You know, dealing with like, wow, I'm 21 years old as the sous chef at Tribeca grill. Is that something that like you ever had to deal with, uh, throughout your time there?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, I dealt with that a lot throughout my career. I felt like I had a very fast trajectory in the beginning that I felt that quite often. Um, mm-hmm. and I always, it required me to take a step back and, realize how grateful I am to be in that position and to make the best of it and, you know, continue to, to work as hard as I can and be grateful for the opportunity.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I think that's a super important perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you start off like rock star status as the the sous chef of Tribeca grill. Where uh, does your career take you two years after, uh, you know, your time there?
1: So after doing two years there, I, you know, really start to just absorb all of the industry. And in and, and my mind at that age, I'm looking at Michelin stars. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking at trying to get into these one, two, three Michelin mm-hmm. stars. And I always get great joy at finding out what the top tier is. Mm hmm. And what the bottom tier is. I always find it an important balance of finding out, okay, this is La Bernadette. This is per se. This is the, the top, top, top tier of restaurants.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? So that's where I wanted to head. And I was lucky enough to get myself into Oceana. Wow. Uh, Oceana was a one Michelin star Seafood restaurant inside of the Rockefeller Center. Yeah. Um, so I was able to get into there, and I was kind of the lead line cook, chef de party if you will, for a little bit, um, working under Ben Pollinger. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that was quite an experience. I mean, <laughs> just seeing the product that they were getting in, just some of the most beautiful fish I've ever seen on my hands on and worked with. And it was what everyone thinks yeah. <laughs> it is that high end, you know, even more intense perfection, striving for perfection. Uh-huh. That's what they were trying to do every single day. The tough part about Oceana, is they are not like the Le Dens in se where they're only doing say a hundred something cover tasting menus. They know what's coming. Um, Oceana is a one Michelin star a la carte restaurant that mm. is enormous. Wow. We were doing three hundred to six hundred for lunch. Wow. And same numbers at dinner. That
0: is surprising to me. I, I mean, I, obviously, uh, I know it's a, a a big space, but that is a remarkable number of meals. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's enormous. And, you know, they've really figured out how to turn it um, with putting out just consistently great products, Yeah, you know, in the true yeah. French for grade, you know, there's a meat cook, there's a fish cook, there's a vegetable cook, there's a fry cook. And then there's the chef at the pass with a team of people plating everything up. Hmm. So I was the meat and fish guy, kind of the head cook. And I've, you know, cook all the fish and meat perfectly and send it up. And they played everything. Very cool. And
0: And, and you were, you were there for how long?
1: I was there for a year. Mm -hmm. Um, I, at the time had moved to Jersey city, Mm -hmm. um, from my parents' place in Fairfield. And I kind of was at my end with some of the management there. Sure. Um, I didn't like the direction things were going. I wasn't getting inspired by the new dishes they were making, and I felt like I was generally just a workhorse as opposed to being inspired every day.
0: Oh, nice. I mean, not and nice, the, but I'm glad you brought that <laughs> up.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I get what you say. saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so that that was my key to get out. If if I'm not constantly being pushed and surrounded by people trying to inspire and be better and i i have to make a move out so from there i realized that down the street from my apartment in jersey city was two restaurants under construction
2: mm-hmm.
1: um they were being built out by dale Talde. okay um <laughs> so I applied and I joined on and I was lucky enough to be hired as the opening sous chef for these two restaurants in Jersey city. And this is where things really start to take off. Mm -hmm. Um, this is where in, I'd say the five year span I've worked for Dale, we had opened and closed 10 restaurants.
0: Wow. I mean wow. I mean yeah. half that number is an insane amount of work. But wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was uh and the and the first so he at the time when I joined on, um he already had three restaurants in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um he had Thistle Hill Tavern, his namesake Talde. Um And Pork Slope, which was a barbecue restaurant in uh, Park Slope. I've been there. Yeah, great place. Great place. He makes some of the most flavorful, inventive food uh, out there.
0: Very cool place, yeah.
1: Yeah. So those three were going at the time, and uh, I was helping build these two restaurants in Jersey City. Now, one was going to be Talde, mm-hmm. uh, a bigger version of the Brooklyn one. And the other one was called Carino Provisions, which was almost like an eatery, like a full-service market where you can sit down and order a menu, uh, order a la carte. Mm-hmm. The real kicker was both of those were coming out of the same kitchen. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you can have a guy making ramen Next to the guy, you know, making a uh, uh, raviolis or a cacio e pepe. So Jeez. that was uh, with the full service market. There was a speakeasy bar in the basement. It was, it was a lot.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was great for a while. Uh, unfortunately, I think we were a little early into the Jersey City scene for such a progressive, ambitious project. Mm -hmm. Um, But it lasted for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to then go on to open a restaurant called Massoni inside the Arlo Nomad Hotel.
0: And is that where you are now?
1: No. (laughs) No. (laughs) So I was there for about... I want to say 2 3 years and that was really my my kind of home. I felt like that was the most me restaurant that was that I've ever been a part of. Um,
0: and is that from like know, a people perspective or from a cuisine perspective?
1: That's from a cuisine perspective. It's also from a perspective that I was there on the ground floor when the hotel was being built. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had my foot in all the blueprints. I had myself in the kitchen build out. So it was really taking a jump from being a sous chef to this is, you're building a restaurant. Yeah. That's and cool. And it's an experience that was just incredible to witness from, from the ground up. I'm in mean, a 31 floor Hotel. Yeah. Um, it's a sweet you know, spot. a giant restaurant <laughs> in it. Yeah, it, it was great. It was great. Um, so while I was there, Dale and his partners just really went on a tear. Um, we opened Atlantic Social in Brooklyn. We opened a two restaurants in a market down in West Palm Beach. We opened Rice and Gold, which was a, a, a really big higher-end uh, Asian restaurant in Chinatown. There's so many other ones. I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but <laughs> that's when things really escalated. To to I'm a chef now. Mm-hmm. You know, I am an executive chef, um, and I learned so much.
0: That's wild. Yeah. And you are now today doing what?
1: So today, uh, unfortunately the owners of all those restaurants decided to go their separate ways and things weren't coming together. So, uh, Masoni had closed and I had helped open what was called Lamalo. Uh, it was a Middle Eastern restaurant, um, where we specialized in this bread called Lafa bread, which was cooked on lava rocks in an oven. Wow. Um, So it makes all these dimples, and basically when you would come into the restaurant, you'd sit down at the table, and almost immediately, this giant piece of bread would come and hit the middle of your table, and then we would surround your table with about 15 to 20 different dips, spreads, pickles, salads, and everyone just kind of ripped the bread and went in. It was awesome. Wow.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: (laughs) I don't want to tell you what I have for lunch
0: today, but yeah, that sounds incredible. (laughs)
1: Wow. Uh, yeah it was awesome unfortunately uh a day before my year stint there uh i was let go and this was about a month before the pandemic hit
0: yeah so pretty shitty timing.
1: yeah i knew what it was you know at the time i had become such a once the other business owners were out i kind of took it all onto my shoulders. so i really you know Help this new company grow. And I was running the numbers and they had their own executive chef. They had their own corporate executive chef. And since I was doing all the numbers, I knew my time was limited there. Mm-hmm. They were really helping, you know, just using me for the year to kind of pull every ounce of knowledge they can out of me about the building and, and what I knew.
0: So that's tough. Um, so do, are you not currently working right now?
1: I am. I. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a long journey. Yeah, no, no. Uh, <laughs> um, I am currently working with David Massoni, okay. uh, who is one of the, obviously the owner of Masoni. Mm-hmm. Um He has a restaurant in South Orange. Oh no uh, shit! Called the Fox and the Falcon.
0: Oh no shit! I've heard of that place. Yeah. I've not been, but yeah, wow.
1: You got to come by.
0: I'm gonna. I'm absolutely gonna. That's awesome. Yeah. So, are you the head chef there? What are what's your?
1: I am the sous chef there right now. Cool. Um, yeah, I actually work under an amazing chef. Uh, call is Chef Ruby. Um, I was lucky enough to actually hire her as a line cook back at the Talde Jersey City.
0: No kidding.
1: Um, and I kind of you know. I'd like to say I helped groom groom her, but she was such a natural that that she really came up on her own and had the same drive and passion that that I had when I was doing that grind. And uh, I work under her now, and it's fantastic. That's amazing. um, We're putting out,
2: yeah.
0: I, I mean, talk about a wild journey. Uh, in the culinary world. And I, and I know that there's like a lot of probably similar stories to people who are up and coming in, in the industry. Right. Because you're, you're constantly have to be moving to be moving up is, is the, my, my assumption of, of what I've learned from, from, you know, other friends I have that are in the industry as well. Um, but you had like some, Serious victories early on in not just your life but your career as well. Um, so what you know you had mentioned like how you kind of got to this stagnation point where you know inspiration wasn't there, management wasn't really you know working for you. Um, from like a culinary perspective, you've worked in a bunch of different. Um, you know, capacities in terms of like, uh, tastes, right. Like, you know, Italian restaurants, uh, Indian restaurants, et cetera. Um, do you have like specific, uh, you know, desires or wants from like the food that you're making or are you just like Jack of all trades? I'll do whatever.
1: Uh, local and sustainable. I like that. Nice. That's my answer. I, you know, I, I liked, <laughs> There is this new category that I like to say There is this new American thing going on, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, showcasing what's here and what's local. And I'd like to put myself in that category, but I mean, it all depends on what I can get my hands on, you know, mm-hmm. it all depends on what's right in front of me. And, and, and I think my experience lets me lead that to be whatever cuisine makes sense for that current dish in the current season. Um,
0: that's pretty cool. So what inspires you from like a culinary perspective? Like what, like informs, you know, your thoughts on the menu, what informs, um, you know, things that you want to see your restaurant producing?
1: Yeah. Uh, for me, I believe that it's all about community. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a huge part for me. I was lucky enough during the pandemic to actually open a donation kitchen with a guy named Dave from wealth kitchen in Jersey city. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, we were able to feed, send out 2,500 meals a week.
0: Oh my God. That's incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's for 10 amazing. weeks. Um, that's amazing. It was phenomenal. And I think, that really ignited something that i didn't know was in me and i didn't see in the restaurant for so long grinding away in these kitchens in new york city is we were going we were driving an hour and a half to blooming hill farms up in upstate new york we were gathering all of our product from the farm
2: mm-hmm.
1: coming back and you know being able to to cook that simply and showcase its beauty and send those packages out to help people was something that changed my perception of food and restaurants and what it should be. So looking at a menu now, it's, it's helping out the agriculture, the farmers, the people that are around me, bringing their beautiful products together to showcase them in a simple way that people enjoy. Right. I,
0: I was going to say, yeah, I found that, like, obviously the restaurant industry was one of the hardest hit, um, throughout the pandemic, but it was wildly inspirational how many common stories there are of people like that and restaurant groups like that, that very quickly pivoted to being a, you know, a crucial cog in their community to like providing people with stuff that, you know, they didn't have, um, it, it was one of the more remarkable, um, I think, takeaways from what was otherwise like a really, really shitty situation. And I go beyond by applauding that. That's like incredible. Uh,
1: it, it was incredible. It is, right? We're problem solvers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we're constantly in shitty situations or stress situations. And to see these people, have so many friends that just instantly pivoted and said, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to help people? How are we going to stay inspired, right? As much as it was horrible, and I am still feeling the effects from it today, it required people to change. Mm -hmm. Our industry has to change. It has to evolve. It has to figure out a way to to be sustainable Mm
2: -hmm.
1: (laughs) i've been doing it for 12 years and i would be lying if there wasn't times that i was completely burnt out oh yeah that i was on fumes it has to change there has to be an agreement of how this can be a sustainable industry a profitable industry there's and just mentally better for those that are going through it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the shittiest things. It's like you you and and it's still now like something that like the servers, the front of the house people, they're constantly bombarded with like assholes, right? They're <laughs> they're marginalized, they're shit on and it's it's just a really, really shit sandwich that these people have to eat on like a daily basis. And like, it is so compounded now post pandemic, because what I've understood is there's a massive shortage in cooks, in servers, in, in every line that, you know, works into providing someone a meal. And like, people are just assholes. They have like no... No, uh, you know, ability to look at like what is transpiring throughout the world. They just want to know why their cheeseburger is like got pepper jack and not cheddar. It's like fuck off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying?
2: I, I,
1: yeah. When well, we were originally going through the pandemic and everything started to open up, and we were, you know, kind of getting our feet back under us, you know, we did think that like maybe people are going to be a little bit more respectful <laughs> of what we do. Man, I couldn't be more wrong. People came in even hotter, you know, and it's, I I truly believe that people come to restaurants sometimes with negative intentions already in their mind. They're coming to complain. Exactly. Coming to complain. You see it all the time. I had a table. (laughs) I had a table a few nights ago. Um, they came in, they ordered a Sprite this was five minutes before closing. Keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, they ordered a Sprite. They ordered a whole fish, which is one of the longer things for us to cook, um, and a steak and some other stuff, whatever. So here we are. We're, we're cooking about you know, 30, 40 minutes past closing. Um, and they didn't like the, how the Sprite tasted. <laughs> so they sent the Sprite back. And once we hit the food on the table... They didn't like the food. They didn't even try it. They said, if the Sprite is a a, a representation of how your food's going to be, we don't want it. Oh my God. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean,
0: fuck off completely.
1: I, you know, I mean, you're not allowed and, to do
0: that, but yeah.
1: No, but you know, it's just a glaring example that happened recently that uh, people can sometimes be going through something and yeah.
0: and they like to take it, you on know, take who, it out on people yeah it's a, it's an unfortunate yeah. uh realization that you know people like to belittle other people because it unfortunately makes themselves feel better about whatever it is that they're going through, which, you know, geez, we could spend an hour talking about that uh, of itself. Um, Mike, I've got a couple questions. Um, you had, you've had, well, you know, I'm going to say wild success at a young age. Um, and I, my question to that is what do you perceive as your greatest success to date in work, like from a culinary perspective and what is your biggest culinary dream?
1: I would say that my greatest success would be the donation kitchen. It was the thing that that, (laughs) it was the thing that brought the most uh, sense and joy and out of what we do, you Mm -hmm. know, taking something that's hard as is making it positive and beneficial, not just for a profit, you know, to really be helping people. Um, is something that has stuck with me and changed my perception of the interest, industry. Um, I, I
0: really like that.
1: Yeah. And my, I guess my, my biggest culinary goal or inspirations would be, I, <laughs> I'm going simple now, man. <laughs> I, you know, I was lucky enough to have a, a very good amount of success in my earlier days. And back in those days, I did dream of, of being these John George's and these guys with restaurants all over the world. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. If that was somehow a possibility, I'm in, I'm Mm -hmm. jumping in. Sure. But the more I look at it, the more I really just want to start off with something extremely small, something extremely local, something that's, pivotal in the community and its growth um, and, and something that's not a complete headache yeah I think there is an evolution going on where there are ways to do it and not miss birthdays uh, how you know all the things I've missed over the day there over the last few years there's that, a change happening that was that's actually important
0: yeah that was my actually my next question was going to be, um, you have a career that rubs fundamentally up against that, you know, time wise of, you know, every friend and family member that you have. And talk to me how that, you know, alternate working schedule has like impacted relationships, either, you know, personal dating, et cetera, or that of with your like friends and family.
1: Sure. Um it's impacted tremendously. Um, <laughs> luckily enough, uh, when I met my current lovely wife, um, I was at Tribeca Grill. Mm-hmm. Um, I had... We went to high school together. We had oh, cool. our own thing back then, but oh, nice. we kind of rekindled the flame when uh, Drew Nearport wanted to send me to Nobu as a cur- congratulations on uh, being a sous chef. And it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, not too bad at all. It's a funny story because, you know, I was home and I had called everyone I could think of. He said, you know, bring whoever you want. Um, so I started calling everyone and and no one was able to come with me until uh, one of my best friends, Erin. she said, you, you know, you know, Bree's home, Bree, my wife. I said, oh, wow, really, I would love to take her. So I took her. We sat down for what was going to be 25 courses oh, man. of <laughs> basic omakase and sake pairings. And, you know, the chef comes out and says, Scott, hi, how are you? Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, he gives us a tour of the kitchen. Wow. <laughs> and Bree just looks at me and she's like, who, who are you? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, I mean, that's that's a hell, I mean, like, yeah, you know, high school aside, that's a hell of a reintroduction, right?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, I explained it all. And the next thing she says to me, I'll never forget it. She says, you know what? I don't really eat raw fish. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good
0: place for that conversation to be taken. <laughs> yeah.
1: I said, listen, I, I, I respect that 100%. Um, but I do ask that you at least try some. Yeah. This is Nobu. This is some of the best sushi you'll find in the um, world. And in the world. And let's revisit that <laughs> that <laughs> statement at the end of the meal. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, um, needless to say, she, she did enjoy everything and she has been a very adventurous eater since.
0: That's cool. So that, that oh, rekindling evening led to marriage. That's awesome. Um, yep. and now how is like your schedule been, you know, post pandemic kind of getting back into things? Um, you know, you mentioned you miss a lot of birthdays, holidays, like you're, you know, you guys work all the time. Um, yeah and I would imagine yeah, I, it's just a constant juggling act.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, the, the point of that story to answer your question is that when we decided that we were going to start dating, I said, you have to promise me that you will not break up with me because I work long hours. Oh, nice. You know, I was very open with it and I didn't want it to be an issue. Um, and it's been very hard on her. Um, but she is accepting of what I do and she realizes that I have a passion and a skill for it. Um, so she's amazing. Yeah, um, I, I but everyone I, else, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, everyone else, is, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say a lot of my, my hometown friends and, you know, they've kind of grown separate from me, mm-hmm. um, as we all naturally do when we get old. But, uh, I was the guy that, you know they tried calling a hundred times, and they they couldn't answer or, or or sorry, I couldn't attend whatever they were they were asking for um yeah, it definitely took a toll,
2: yeah,
0: it's tough, you know th- there is that natural you know segregation later on in life where like the you know people have wives and kids and jobs, and you know if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's you know the the valuable amount of time that we have with our family and our friends it's it's can be few and far between um. So it's you know it's it's a shitty realization as you get later on in life where like you you know the time that you have with friends and stuff diff you know it differentiates from you know your 20s but for you you were probably working as you know much then as you are now so um that's that's yeah. tricky for sure I mean obviously I think it's tremendous to find a partner who you know can accept and appreciate you know the life that you're trying to you know build with someone while also you know having a a, a non-linear 9 to 5
1: Yep. I'm very lucky um, but it's also who you're surrounding yourself with, who you're who you're working with, right I think not only myself, everyone that I do work with knows I am a big advocate that life needs to happen. Mm, you I know you can't just ride this grind. I did it for so long where I missed so much granted there were points where I became an executive chef and I was able to take certain days off and it got better. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe ever in my career until right now, I was the most um, present and understanding that we all need to attend these important things to make our jobs better. Mm -hmm. There's no better feeling my chef is currently on vacation for a week and I am more than happy to make sure, and I'm going to go above and beyond to make sure that everything is done perfectly. So she doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah. So that next time when I need something off, she's willing to do the same. Yeah. It's about building that team that understands that and takes, you know, not, Oh, screw this guy. He's, he's on vacation on the beach.
0: Yeah. Right. That's crucial. That's I mean, that, not that, healthy. Yeah, no, that that's extremely crucial. Um, I think that with like time in life, you you gain a, a, a rapid appreciation and perspective for time. Right. Like at the end of the day, you know, you quickly jump into your thirties and realize that life goes quick. You know, the 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 days might move slow, but the years certainly blow by. And being able to be like cognizant of that is is crucially important. Um, you, you have a career in a field that I, I would say is, as cutthroat and rat racy as, you know, any industry out there. Um, I know that in my twenties, I constantly had myself, you know, f- where am I going to be five years from now? What's my job title going to be? What's my you know salary going to be? What's my car going to be? Um, do you see yourself, um, you know, Becoming a, a creature of habit like that forecasting your your working career five years out a year out, you know 16 months from now is do you find yourself? Constantly looking forward rather than taking stock in the present
1: <laughs> What a great question um, currently I think about those things mm-hmm. but my wife uh, is a yoga teacher oh, cool. and has introduced me to lots of meditation and great literatures uh, on this subject. And over the past, I'd say, year, um, I've really been working on slowing down, being present, and, you know, <laughs> Eric Tolley's power of now, all we have is now, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and what you're doing now in this moment will get you to what those goals are, I right? The, the future leads to anxiety. The past leads to depression, hmm. right? I try and find myself present, grateful, um, you know, and try and be happy at all the little things I can, right? Happy isn't a consistent feeling. Happy is a birthday Happy's uh, a new car, you know. Yeah, although that's materialistic, but understood. You get what I'm saying.
0: I do. I've right? also I've also found that I share a very similar perspective now, like in my 30s, that I didn't have that level of appreciation or even respect for, you know, the things that I was doing in my life in my 20s. So, do you think this kind of like, you know, mental, you know, attunement to like happiness and, and time is, is only something that you can get with age? Um, do you think that it takes like a certain amount of time for a person to be able to appreciate everything? Because I look back at my mid twenties self and wish I had the level of appreciation for life that I do now.
1: Well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, 100%. I mean, they, <laughs> this is a whole nother pig's conversation but (laughs) i wish someone taught us this yeah right (laughs) like i wish there was that understanding and 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 just the materials and the the access to information we have now i wish it was something that was being taught right your mind is a tool Mm -hmm. you don't have to listen to everything Mm -hmm. right absolutely it it, it takes a while to get there but everyone progresses at their own rate. you may catch that earlier it take me till my thirties to to really, you know, understand that that topic.
0: I'm I'm obviously extremely similar in that. Um, I've I've often harped upon um, shortcomings in the educational field, and you know I, I have all the utmost respect and appreciation for teachers, but the curriculum doesn't allow for like creative interpretation for people. Like it is. I'm going to teach you the Pythagorean theorem and like accounting and and statistics and things that, you know, the curriculum dictates you need to know, but it's never like we want to foster creative growth with, with people, whether you're in elementary school, junior high, high school, college. It's like you got to get the A's so that you can get into the good. AP classes in high school and then you got to get a good score on your SATs so that you can get into a good college but throughout that entire journey it's never like what do you want to be learning about what do you want to be doing and I rail against that a lot and I understand it's like a very forward-thinking place to be and you know hopefully one day the education system gets there beyond where we're at today and that's like a hopeful point of me um but I I, I'm genuinely curious because you're in what I would consider a creative field. Um, like what was it that made you like feel comfortable in taking the leap into diving into like what was started off as a passion?
1: Um, my father gave me a paperweight when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Uh, and on it, it says, "What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail?" Wow. And that's been stuck with me forever. Uh, I think growing up and when I was in college, it, it these cooking shows and the <laughs> the <laughs> Gordon Ramsay and all of that stuff started to to come out more. And that look at this guy, this guy. Yes, he's. Uh, uh, celebrity chef, uh tv personality. But he made it. And mm-hmm. and I started looking at people like him, mm-hmm. people like Wolfgang Pup, people like John George, you know. And how they got there. And I said, this is possible. Mm-hmm. Other people are doing it. Why can't I? It's good. You know? And and, and that really kind of took the jump. Um you know, and, and just my curiosity for food and, and you know, health in general, kind um, of projected me there. I like that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it <laughs> makes, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, <laughs> I, no, I appreciate that. I, I look at that, like, because I, I've been that way. And again, this is something that I've come to later on in life, like being able to pick up a camera and become a photographer, being able to pick up a microphone and start a podcast. I, I don't look at those things as like hurdles, right? They're just something I want to do. So I'm going to do it. Um, I don't think enough people take, you know, I I say a risk, but it's not like I'm taking a risk by starting something that just not costing me anything. Like this is my time, you know, and the time of the people who I get to have these conversations with. And from a photography perspective, sure, there's like the, the capital involved in purchasing gear, but the cost benefit analysis to me is there's no question. And yeah, and I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, What is your biggest piece of advice for like people at home, like who, you know, not outdoor dining and going to like restaurants and stuff, but like, I love to cook. I find that a lot of of my peers do not love to cook. What's something like a tip or a suggestion or something that can like help foster the love of at home cooking for, you know, our friends, our family.
1: Yeah. I mean, My thing is I believe that everyone's pantry is not where it needs to be. I think what makes restaurant chefs so great are these things that, these preservatives, these oils, these vinegars, these seasonings, once all that is around you and your pantry is stopped, picking up, you know, fresh vegetables and all of that, you know, meat and proteins, however you eat, um, it becomes easier to cook when those things are there, Hmm. right? Because, for example, okay, I always have a bunch of pickled onions. I always have a bunch of confit garlic. Um, Those things that are easy to kind of add into things to really, you know, boost up that flavor. Um, So I think really... That makes it easier, you know, cooking a pot of rice on a Monday and using it for three, four days to, you know, make bowls or burritos or something like that. It's it's less thinking about what I'm going to eat right now. It's it's more meal prep and planning and having the stocked pantry.
0: Nice. Yeah, I like that. I uh, I was very excited about having this conversation with you because I, I do have a deep affinity for, for the culinary arts. Uh, you know, I was very, very close to going to Johnson Wells for culinary school. Um, you know, I worked uh, in kitchens in summers uh, growing up and I'm super glad that I didn't do it. I think, (laughs) I think it takes a certain human being to be able to be successful in the kitchen. And, uh, I think you probably have a lot more of the necessary tools than I do. Um, what is it about cooking that you love
1: most? There's a few things. Um, I am a big team builder. Um, that's something that I really love. I mean, that's from a restaurant standpoint. I love building a team. I love being able to make uh, a profitable restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's something that's really interesting to me. The financials, the the data, the, the team, um, and all of the links of getting great products in your door is what drives me every day. The cooking, every day is different. I say something in the kitchen every day. Every day is a school day. Hmm. You don't know everything. Every single person can teach you something about cooking that you didn't know. I like that. The problem is a lot of people come out of these great schools like the CIA or or whatever, and they think they know everything. Their mind is closed. They're not open to learning from everyone in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. I have... You know dishwashers that bring me in chili rellenos the other day. That whoa, these are incredible! How do you make them? You know, and they teach me little tricks and tips and and, and that bond of teaching and growing and cooking better food that everyone enjoys uh, is really what what pushes me every day.
0: I like that. That that's a very thoughtful perspective. That that's uh that's pretty cool. I like that. Um, I like to spend the last little bit of, uh, each of my conversations with people doing like just little rapid fire questions and, um, just, you know, little hit or misses kind of things. So my first question will be, what is the biggest piece of advice you have for someone who's listening to you on this podcast for the first time? It could be literally anything, but just like one little tidbit, one little piece of advice that you have for everyone.
1: I would say, um, Keep being curious. Keep asking questions. Live in your heart and your soul, not in your head. And take these podcasts. It is an incredible platform. I drive an hour to work there and back every day. And I am just flying through podcasts. (laughs) And the platform to have these conversations with people that are wildly intelligent is something that everyone should be diving into every single day.
0: I like that. Appreciate that. What's your favorite book?
1: Favorite book right now, uh, I would say, "Think Like the Monk" by Jay Shetty. Yeah, or the Celestine Prophecy.
0: I'm not familiar with that one.
1: Both similar concepts. Um, you know, I, I read the show. books. So.
0: I like Jay Shetty. I, 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 I find He's, I find him occasionally preachy, but I, I more or less enjoy him thoroughly.
1: Yeah. I think he's what he's doing is so significant to right now that energy shift, that mind shift that a lot of people are going through. if Something's happening, and, and to see him at the forefront of pushing it. Yes, there are times where he is preachy, yeah. um, but the general no, I agree. The general intent is so important.
0: Uh, th- that I wholeheartedly agree with. What's uh, what's your favorite movie? Kill Bill, Volume One.
1: All of them. Okay. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say one, yeah, one is my favorite, but um, they're all incredible.
0: Nice. This might be a really hard one for you, but what's your favorite food?
1: That is a hard one. As <laughs> a chef, you always get this, like, so what's your signature dish? What do you like to cook? Um, and some people have it. Uh, I think with my uh, vast kind of knowledge of different cuisines, it's, more difficult for me to kind of hone in to what that is and it's usually what's ever in front of me mm-hmm. is my favorite thing to cook um,
0: what's your favorite food to eat I,
1: I am a uh, I'm a natural Jersey guy. Give me a Taylor ham, egg and cheese, Fuck, a yes. fresh made bagel, yes. and a cup of coffee. <laughs> I'm, I'm a happy man. <laughs> I love that.
0: That's so great. From a Michelin star restaurant and <laughs> line cook, I, I fucking love that. What a perfect answer. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, lastly, what is one recommendation that you have for everyone listening uh, on the podcast today? It could be something that you've consumed lately, whether it's like a book, a movie, TV show, just something that you've consumed lately that you'd like everyone to check out?
1: Um, there's so much good stuff. There's so much. Um, you know, I think as far as consuming, I, I am obsessed with Duncan Trussell's The Family Hour. Oh,
2: I'm going to have to he check is, that
1: out. So it's the guy that made Midnight Gospel. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that on Netflix. Netflix. Mm -hmm. So his podcast is uh, called Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Um, Not only is it some of the most intelligent uh, conversations I've heard in a long time, it really challenges everything from, you know, are we in a simulation to uh, aliens? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also he does these ads that will have you rolling on the floor. They, they are the funniest ads you'll ever hear. Nice. Uh, and it's a good mix. I'll
0: check it out. Everyone's got to check I, it I out. I do consume a lot of podcasts, but I haven't listened to that yet. Um, I found Midnight Gospel, like, every adjective that I could possibly conceive, that's how I found that show. I mean, it's like the weirdest, most enlightening, bizarre I, it's everything. It's like everything. It is. My my buddy Rick told me to watch it, and I was like five minutes in, and I, and I paused it, and I was like, I texted him. I was like, dude, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> and and it and it takes like that like ten minute barrier for you to get into it and like really just, just like enjoy it. It's why it's it's yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a very interesting. I, I didn't realize that the guy who made that had a podcast. But I definitely have to to check it out now. Um, my recommendation is a show on Apple TV Plus called Trying. Um, it is super good. It is so like heartfelt, endearing. It's it's a funny. It's it's just all all great. Great work! Um, I've been trying to get the lead actress on the podcast for a while now. We DM'd last week, and I'm really trying to get her people to uh, to make it happen. So fingers crossed that that comes through. But uh, it is such a delightful show. I think everyone should uh, should check it out. Yeah, I gotta check it out. Yeah, it's good. Exciting. Uh, Scott, dude, um, I am wildly impressed with you as not just like a, a chef and a professional, but like as a human being, I, I greatly enjoyed uh, this conversation. Um, I've got a really cheesy line. Uh, pretty much everyone that I have on this show uh, is like family now. Um, so welcome. Super glad to have had you on today. Can't wait to uh, stop by your restaurant. Uh, try to get that out of the way in the next couple of weeks for sure. Um, but thank you so much for your time, man. I really, imp- really, really enjoyed the conversation
1: same john thank you so much Uh, i'm very grateful for what you're doing um and putting uh you know the voice and perspective of people like myself and having these great conversations uh you know so much gratitude and uh you know we're friends now you got to come in for a a beer and some wings sold
0: (laughs) sold (laughs) thanks man